Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie, and I would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect workshop, Managing the Costs of Care When You Have Lymphoma. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations, including Lymphoma Research Foundation and Lymphoma Foundation of America and the Max Foundation. And I really want to um, thank all of these organizations for collaborating with us to make this program possible today. And it's really because of that collaboration that we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. So we have over 739 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, India, Philippines, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and the United Kingdom. So you really are from all over the world, and it's a bit of a global call. Um, now, today's program was supported by an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Allison Rosenthal. And Dr. Rosenthal is a hematology consultant, Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And just to start the program off, She's going to discuss an update on lymphoma and its treatment and talking with your healthcare team about financial concerns. I'm now going to turn this program over to Dr. Rosenthal. Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you for having me on the call today. It's my pleasure to be here, and I'm so glad so many people had the opportunity to call in from all over. So my first task is, I only have a few minutes, um, however, I'm going to speak a little bit about an update on lymphoma and its current treatments and then talk a little bit about discussing your financial concerns with your healthcare team. So to start off, um, I think first and foremost, this is a pretty exciting time as far as lymphoma management and new treatment options goes. I think um, having just come into this field in the last several years, a lot has changed already, and I think patients are starting to notice that the original paradigms are starting to change. Mostly this is because we finally recognize that even though we may diagnose the patient with something like diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which is very common, or something like mantle cell lymphoma, which is a little bit less common, we know that those names don't encompass the, the biology and the behavior of the, the diseases completely. So we've recognized as providers and as scientists that these diseases are really, really heterogeneous things and dictated by the molecular and genetic events that occur. So for that reason, we've started to change what we're doing with clinical trials to better help people. And a good example of that would be, in the past, we've treated large cell lymphoma all the same, assuming that people can tolerate the standard of care therapy, which is often our chop. But now we realize that there are different cells that give rise to different kinds of large cell lymphoma, and the behavior is different. So we've started looking at adding things to our CHOP based on the biology that we can now identify. And some of those studies have already looked very promising. Not everybody will be completely cured with our CHOP, and so we want to make sure that we're doing our best for those that might not be, and these studies are helping us do so. So things like adding treatments like Revlimid or Abrutinib to CHOP have been studied, and it looks like we may be able to incorporate that into treatment paradigms in the future, and so far the um, standard of care hasn't changed, but I think it will in the near future. 
I think another example of that is that we have noticed that there are certain biological things that happen in slower growing lymphomas like follicular lymphoma, marginal zone lymphoma, or Waldenstrom's, and for that reason new drugs have been approved. An example of that and a drug that's still being studied but should be approved in the near future is a medicine called venetoclax. That particular medicine inhibits a signal called BCL2, which is a feature of many kinds of lymphoma, and that's basically a signal that tells the cells not to die. So if we can inhibit that signal and turn it off, then we are able to get a better control of the lymphoma growth and hopefully put pe more people into a remission for a longer period of time. Because of things like this, we may be approaching a period where we can actually treat slower-growing lymphomas with what we consider to be chemotherapy-free regimens, where in the past that was never really an option. And I think that's pretty exciting for patients, as well as for us, because it can be scary to have chemotherapy, and, and there are a lot of side effects that come with that, and perhaps we can avoid a lot of those things with some of the newer treatments we have that might both be more effective and better tolerated. Another thing that I wanted to bring up is just the fact that there's been a lot of attention with immunotherapy and its utility in treatments of different kinds in the treatment of different kinds of lymphoma. And that has been looked at in a variety of ways. One popular way that has gotten a lot of attention in the last couple years is with checkpoint inhibitors. So we understand now that your immune system should play a pretty important role in keeping the lymphoma from growing or from even becoming a problem in the first place. But lymphoma cells are pretty smart, and they're able to hijack some of our normal immune defenses and tell the immune system to leave it there and not go after it. So some of these new checkpoint inhibitors reverse that, and they go ahead and help reactivate your natural immune system to try to help fight the lymphoma. And so some of those drugs have already been approved in solid tumors like lung cancer, kidney cancer, and melanoma, but I think they'll also be approved in the near future for different kinds of lymphoma and when and where those therapies will be used as far as first or later is kind of still be to, um, to be determined. Another area of popular immunotherapy treatment has been discussion of these CAR T cells, which are basically genetically engineered T cells removed from a patient. They're taught, they're taught how to go after the cancer cells um, and then expanded in a lab and given back to the patient. That's a pretty intensive therapy, but there may be a role for it in lymphoma. There have been very exciting results as far as this goes in pediatric leukemia and some kinds of lymphoma as well. These are also still considered to be investigational therapies and not yet approved, but hopefully in the near future we'll know if and where they have a role. And then last but not least, I think because of there being so many new targeted agents for lymphoma and all of these new things that are oral therapies where you don't have to come and sit in an infusion chair, obviously those are things that are exciting and patients would prefer to be able to take a pill and stay at home. But some of these medications come with significant out-of-pocket costs to the patient, and I think we'll hear more about some resources available for that on this call. But because we know that that's the case and because we know it's a pretty um, incredible financial burden on some people to be diagnosed with cancer and go through treatment at all, it's important that you bring up any concerns you might have about your financial ability to maintain your current quality of life and maintain your ability to come to your appointments and receive the treatment. And if no one brings it up to us as, as your healthcare team, then it's hard for us to know. I'm particularly fortunate in that we have people who handle those things for for our patients where I work, and so I don't have to worry about it so much, but it's something that I ask patients when they come in all the time because 
it, you shouldn't feel embarrassed or like it's not the right thing to do. We're certainly ha happy to help in any way we can, and if we don't know that you're struggling, it's hard for us to do so. So I guess that would kind of sum up my time, I think, and maybe I'll hand it back to you, Carolyn, for the next. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Rosenthal. That was really excellent, really an excellent presentation and, um, and lots of information, and um, I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. And our next uh, speaker is uh, uh, Deborah Wolf. Deborah Wolf is an attorney. She's supervising attorney legal health, New York Legal Assistance Group, NILAG. And uh, Ms. Wolf is going to address benefits and limitations of your health coverage and tips on appealing medical insurance claims and provider denials. It's my pleasure now to turn this panel over to Ms. Wolf. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and I'm so pleased to be a part of this teleconference with Cancer Care. I'll first be discussing how best to understand both the benefits and limitations of your health coverage and then tips for appealing claim denials. In discussing health coverage as well as appeals, it's important to know that there are different types of insurance plans, and these include group policies from your employment, union benefits, privately purchased policies, as well as policies available through the Affordable Care Act marketplace. I'll also briefly discuss Medicaid and Medicare. The insurance laws of your state may also require certain minimum benefits, so your rights do vary depending on where you live. So this will be very general advice relating to everybody, but it's also important to understand the laws of the state you live in. As a start, the most important advice I can give is to have and read a copy of your policy or at the very least, a summary description of your policy. This will outline your benefits, any coverage limits, and the appeals process, which we'll discuss in a bit. Your insurance company representative can also be a very good resource to call if you have questions about what is or is not covered, because even with the Affordable Care Act, insurance policies are still allowed to have certain coverage limits, so you do have to understand your benefits. You also need to know whether your policy is an HMO, which allows only in-network doctors, or a plan that allows for out-of-network doctors, although often at a much reduced reimbursement rate. With an HMO, you generally have a co-payment, sometimes a deductible, and that's the extent of your financial responsibility if your doctor is in-network. With other policies, your out-of-network doctor can bill you directly for any amount not paid for by your insurance. So you have to understand and advance the limits of your coverage so that you can make informed decisions about your medical care. I'm sure everyone has heard some of the good changes with the Affordable Care Act, and I want to review a few that have impacted benefits for everyone and are important to know. So a health insurance marketplace now, marketplace now operates in every state. And in the marketplace, you can compare different plan benefits, see if you're entitled to government-paid subsidies to lower the cost, and determine if you may be eligible for free coverage under Medicaid. You can also access this information at the federal site, healthcare.gov. Now, because of the Affordable Care Act, a person can't be denied insurance based on their health, and most insurers can no longer refuse coverage because of pre 
existing conditions. Another important change is the requirement that insurance companies can no longer limit the amount they will pay for medical costs over the year or the person's lifetime. There's no monetary caps on coverage. So this means an insurance company can no longer say, once we spend a certain amount of money, you're no longer covered. All plans must now cover essential health benefits, which is a pretty long list, which includes outpatient emergency services, prescriptions, hospitalization, mental health, and preventive care. In the marketplace plans, there are four levels of coverage, but none pay 100% of costs. So it's important to review the choices to determine the best coverage for you. But even with these changes, all policies can still limit certain coverages. This might include the number of physical therapy visits or home nursing visits allowed per year. Any limits or exclusions must be set forth in the policy or the summary description. You must review the insurance policies offered and discuss with those who offer support, such as your medical team or a social worker, to make sure you're covered for all necessary treatment and care and all your doctors are plan participants. Finally, if your plan requires pre-authorization, and most do for major medical procedures in radiology, such as PET scans and MRIs, make sure either you check with your doctor's office or insurance company to confirm that the procedure is approved. If you have an HMO, make sure all your doctors are in network. And if you're having surgery, make sure all of the doctors involved, such as your anesthesiologist, are also in network. Now, moving to Medicare and Medicaid, these are both government-sponsored health insurance, and both have been approved with the Affordable Care Act. Medicare is a federal program with rules that are uniform to all participants in all 50 states. It's available to most people age 65 or older who are citizens or permanent residents, and under, if under age 65, a person who's been receiving Social Security disability benefits for a period of 24 months. Medicare is not available to others with some very limited excep exceptions. And similar to private insurance, you'll get more preventive services for less, as well as a free yearly wellness visit. Medicare prescription coverage has been approved by the gradual elimination of the donut hole, which limited your drug coverage previously. But Medicare benefits are limited and don't cover the entire cost of medical treatment. Often up to 80% is paid, but the remaining 20% can be very costly, especially with the cost of cancer treatment. Many people purchase additional Medicare GAP policies to supplement Medicare, and I should point out that these policies are exempt from the Affordable Care Act protections, and some may even have pre-existing condition exclusions, so make sure to read these plans and ask questions to make sure you understand all the benefits. In some states, uh, Medicaid can be used as a supplement to Medicare, and Medicaid is, is provided on a free basis. And some states also have a program called the Medicare Savings Program in which the state pays a portion of the Medicare costs, including the Part B premium, and if, depending on income, they also may pay coinsurance and other expenses related to your health treatment if you have Medicare.
Moving to Medicaid, Medicaid is a federal-state partnership with shared authority and financing. Certain eligibility rules are established mainly by each state and vary depending on where you live, so it's important to know your state Medicaid requirements and regulations. Access is based on being low income with a limit on how much you can have in income, assets, and resources. And for those who are disabled or elderly with higher income, one can often become eligible through special Medicaid programs. With the Affordable Care Act in about one half of the states, Medicaid has been expanded to increase coverage to more lower income people, including groups that have not always had access to Medicaid. And as I mentioned earlier, one marketplace application will determine eligibility for Medicaid, which is free, or a health plan through the marketplace, as well as any subsidies for the premium. Medicaid recipients are also entitled to the same benchmark benefit package that meets the minimum essential health benefits available in the uh, health insurance exchanges. So the goal of the Affordable Care Act is to enhance the quality of care for all Americans, regardless of whether they have private insurance, Medicare, or Medicaid, but even with these protections, claims are sometimes denied. Your insurance company is required to provide an explanation of benefit, called an EOB, for each claim reviewed. The EOB outlines the amount paid by your insurance, your required contribution, which can be your copay or a percentage, and if they're not paying, the reasons for the denial. So it's really important to read every explanation of benefit to make sure your claim has been paid properly, and if not, the reasons for the denial. When a claim is denied, your first step should be to call the insurance company right away to discuss. There's many reasons a claim may be denied, and often the insurance company just needs more documentation from your doctor's office to approve. Claims are also sometimes denied for administrative errors that are easy to fix, but make sure to keep track of every call or letter, writing down the date and who you spoke with at your insurance company. Health plans and insurance companies have to tell you why they've decided to deny a claim with very specific information. You also have the right to request a full copy of your insurance file prior to the appeal to see how they reach their decision, and that includes any notes made by the case handler and any reports by the insurance company doctor who reviewed your claim. If the matter can't be resolved by speaking with the insurance company, you have the right to file an appeal directly to your insurance company. Often the first appeal is submitted through your doctor's office, so talk to your medical team. In your written appeal, document the reasons you disagree with the insurance company and always include medical letters and a letter from your treating doctor. Your insurance company must conduct a full and fair review of its decision, and if urgent, they must expedite this process. If your insurance company denies the appeal, you then have the right to request what's called an external review, which gives you the right to file an appeal to an outside, objective, and independent panel, no matter where you live or what type of insurance you have. This means that independent medical professionals with no financial stake in the claim make the decision. And if the external reviewer overturns your insurance company's denial, your insurer must give you the payments or services you requested in your claim.
Another important Affordable Care Act protection that could be helpful is the requirement for consumer assistance. And this requires that each state designate an Office of Health Insurance Consumer Assistance that will respond to inquiries and complaints by consumers and help file complaints and appeals and there should be a contact number on your Marketplace website or through healthcare.gov. Also check with your state insurance department because some states have insurance departments that can be help very helpful when somebody has an, a problem with their insurance company. And finally, it's very important to make sure you understand your time limits to file an appeal as they are, these are very strict deadlines. If you have a policy from employment, the time limit is usually 180 days. For other plans or with Medicaid or Medicare, the deadline is often as short as 60 days. And if a claim is denied, you will receive written notice about how to appeal, so make sure you read these notices. The good news is that around half of all denied claims that are appealed are finally allowed coverage, and the percentage for external reviews is even higher. If you draw on all the resources available to you and have medical support for your claim, you stand a good chance of having your claim paid. So to summarize, it's important to read your health care policy so that you understand your coverage, what's required of you, how to appeal, and any deadlines imposed. Appeal deadlines are strict, so make sure to read your EOBs from the insurance company and respond on time. I know it's often difficult to keep on top of insurance matters with so much else going on, but with an understanding of what your rights and your responsibilities are, as well as help from your medical team and groups such as cancer care, you should be able to navigate any insurance issues or questions that come up. I do want to briefly mention that there is a National Cancer Legal Service Network, a group of attorneys like myself, who offer free legal advice or assistance to people with cancer. And you can check to see if help may be available to you in your state. And that website is nclsn.org. Stands for National Cancer Legal Service Network, NCLSN. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Deborah. That was really outstanding. Really lots of information for everybody. And um, I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Um, thank you so much. Um, and um, our next presenter is um, Michelle McCourt. Uh, Michelle is Cancer Care's uh, Copay Assistance uh, Director, um, and Ms. McCourt is going to be addressing um, understanding and accessing copay assistance programs. And it's my pleasure to actually bring her on board. And she is our senior, actually, Director, Cancer Care Copayment Assistance Foundation. So um, I now turn this program over to Michelle. Thank you, Carolyn. Good afternoon, everyone. My topic today is to discuss understanding and accessing copayment assistance programs. There are several different types of programs available to help patients get access to their prescribed therapy. There are pharmaceutical manufacturer programs. To qualify for this type of program, the patient has to be taking a medication manufactured by the drug company. The drug company will typically offer two types of programs one for uninsured or underinsured patients, and another for patients that have commercial insurance. For the uninsured, these programs are usually referred to as patient assistance programs. In order to qualify, the patient must have no insurance 
or has insurance, but the plan excludes that specific medication. If eligible for this type of program, the drug is typically provided free. For patients with private insurance, many of the drug companies offer copayment assistance programs. Some programs provide coupons, and the most a patient may have to pay out of pocket for the medication is $25. Others offer a copayment assistance program that will cover the entire cost through a copay card. In order to be eligible for these programs, there is usually an income criteria, and the patient cannot have insurance through a federal health or state insurance program, such as Medicare or Medicaid. To find out about these types of programs, you can check with your doctor or pharmacist, or you can do an internet search using the name of the drug as your search criteria. Another important website that keeps a current listing of these programs is needymeds.org. You can also contact an organization like Cancer Care that provides these types of referrals. Other types of programs are offered by independent organizations and are referred to as copayment assistance foundations. These foundations can assist patients with any type of insurance, including patients with federal health care insurance like Medicare. The difference with these programs is they are administered by nonprofit charities. The funding is available based on diagnosis, so these programs are disease-specific, whereas the pharmaceutical programs are drug-specific. There are approximately 12 national copayment assistance foundations. Some provide assistance with copayments and coinsurance for prescription medications, while others also offer assistance with insurance premiums and transportation costs. Once you have been referred to a foundation, get in touch with them right away to start the application process. Each foundation has its own enrollment process, but all must operate their programs based on federal guidance established for providing copayment assistance. All foundations have set financial and medical criteria that need to be documented as part of the application process. If approved, most foundations will establish a third-party payer relationship with the pharmacy or infusion provider or provide an access card that can be used for payment. Additional resources specifically for Medicare beneficiaries may also be available. And I believe um, Ms. Wolf also went into this a little bit, but I'm going to repeat because this is important information. An individual with Medicare as the primary insurance that has a limited income but is not eligible for full state assistance may be eligible for assistance through a Medicare savings program. There are four types of Medicare savings programs. Qualified Medicare Beneficiary, or QMB, Specified Low-Income Medicare Beneficiary, SLMB, Qualified Individual, QI, Qualified Disabled and Working Individuals, QDWI. These are programs, these programs are state assistance programs that can help with Medicare premiums and in some cases pay for the Medicare deductibles, coinsurance, and copayments if you meet certain conditions. If you have a prescription drug plan through Medicare, a Medicare Part D plan, you may also be eligible for extra help or low-income subsidy. If eligible, this assistance would greatly reduce your out-of-pocket costs for prescriptions. There are also state pharmaceutical programs and uh, programs for the elderly. To find out more about these programs and to apply for assistance, you can go online to Medicare.gov and click on your Medicare Cost tab, or you can call Social Security at one 800 772 
1213. The best way to find out about all of these assistance programs is to discuss these financial concerns with your healthcare team. Your healthcare team can put you in touch with a financial counselor or a social worker that can help you find assistance. Thank you. Thank you very much, um, Ms. McCord. That was really outstanding, really lots of wonderful information for people to have and to be aware of all of the different co-payment, uh, co-pay assistance programs that exist and resources. And I know there are questions for you during the Q&A. Our next speaker is uh, Ms. Sarah Kelly. Um, Ms. Kelly is, uh, is our Cancer Care Older Adult Program Coordinator, and she's going to be addressing managing the medical indirect costs of treatment, understanding and accessing financial assistance programs, emotional and social impact of the cost of treatment and follow-up care, and finding resources for financial help. So Ms. Kelly's going to really address a number of topics, and it's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Messner. As Dr. Messner said, uh, I'm a social worker here at Cancer Care, and we've been talking today about really a major concern um, for anyone who is dealing with a cancer diagnosis. How are you going to cover the cost of all of this? It's an expensive illness. The financial concerns are understandable. They're also a significant source of stress. So my, my goal today is to help reduce that stress really by giving you some tools to use. Um, knowledge is power, and I'm going to talk to you today briefly about the three G's, um, which is what I call them, which is get organized, gather information, get connected. Um, so what are some of the costs? We've got medical costs. We've been talking about that today, um, screening treatments, evaluation, follow-ups, the non-medical costs, um, you know, having transportate, uh, transportation, nutrition, in-home care, just daily living expenses, all of these things. So we're going to start with the first G, which is get organized. I really recommend creating a space that is just for the financial part of your care. Um, you know, for some people that's putting everything in a binder, for some people it's having a file box or having a drawer that is just for the finances. And I say that because that makes it easy. It's a go-to, you know, okay, everything I need, all the bills, all my records, things like that are just in this one space. Keep a log of your expenses. And that really means keeping a log of the bills that are coming in, co-pays you may have paid, keeping receipts, those types of things, so you have an idea of the cost of this all and other resources you may need, you can reach out for them once you see that. People do it different ways. You could actually have a, a physical log you write in, like a ledger. You could do it uh, with a computer program or an app, however you want to do it. I just find it helps to keep that organized. Keep a journal. Um, that could be a spiral notebook, really anything you have. And the journal is a place to talk about um, who you have spoken to, so the name of the different organizations, patient programs, insurance companies, who you spoke to, what was said, and the date of that communication. So you have that on record. If you need to call them back, you can say, you know, I spoke with you on March 17th. We agreed on A, B, and C. So you have that on record. So that's the first G, get organized. The second G is gathering information. And this is really a lot of what we've been talking about today. First and foremost, understand the insurance policy, and I know Deborah Wolf talked about this in depth. I cannot stress how important this is. 
read your policy to understand the benefits, contact the health insurance provider with any questions you may have. You know, you really want to know what portion of the medical expenses you're responsible for paying. Um, you know, is this going to be covered? Is this medication covered by your insurance or your doctor's part of the plan? Your insurance company can also assign you a case manager to help you, so you definitely want to ask them about that as well. If you're not covered under health insurance, I know Deborah Wolf went over this really in-depth, um, but you want to talk to uh, the treatment center or the hospital financial services department as soon as possible. Um, your local Department of Health can also help, and then we also discussed um, the healthcare.gov website where you can find out more about the benefits you need. So uh, gathering information first, you know, understanding insurance, understanding coverage, Talk to your medical team, really, and this is also part of getting connected, talk to them as soon as possible about your financial situation. Dr. Rosenthal um, first brought this up, and it's so important. Healthcare providers don't always ask patients about their insurance coverage or ability to pay. Additionally, patients don't often feel comfortable sharing that information with their provider, but it's important to resolve the financial issues right away um, because, you know, we talked about how they increase the stress. They also can limit access to needed treatments. Patients and providers really can work together um, to devise ways of reducing costs without compromising treatment. You want to connect uh, with the medical team, connect with the financial services department or the billing department of where you go for treatment. If there is a social worker or patient navigator or advocate on site, absolutely. Um, connect with them. One, the, the treatment center may be able to help with a payment plan. They can reduce charges. They may also have special funding to help. So that is huge. Definitely talk to the medical team. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about some other organizations you can speak to. So sort of aside from the treatment center, where can you go for information? So I'm going to start with just a couple organizations um, that are specific to lymphoma. The first one I'm going to mention is the Lymphoma Research Foundation. They have financial assistance programs for uh, individuals who are currently in active treatment for lymphoma. Um, they have a special program for T-cell lymphoma, which is for transportation also. They are also just great with resources. So I believe you have this information in your brochures. I'm briefly just going to go over and give it to you. Uh, the website is www.lymphoma.org. And the number to reach them, 1-800-500-9976. So that's the Lymphoma Research Foundation. I also want to talk about the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Um, they offer assistance to patients with lymphoma and also any blood cancer. Uh, they have financial aid for patients in active treatment, copay assistance. They also just have a lot of information about where to go to get help. They also provide education and family support groups. You can find them online at www.lls.org. And you can also call them, 1-800-955-4572. So there's also other organizations, so us, Cancer Care, the American Cancer Society, and the fin uh, Cancer Financial Assistance Coalition. Many of these organizations maintain a state-by-state -state resource database, so you can find local and national resources. At Cancer Care, you can call our Hopeline, and our oncology social workers are here to help you find resources, and we also provide some financial assistance. Same with American Cancer Society. Um, you can call and speak to one of their patient navigators, and they will also help you 
find resources that you may be needing. I'm also going to mention um, the Cancer Financial Assistance Coalition, which I think is a great resource. Uh, basically, a group of organizations, including Cancer Care, came together to create a user-friendly online database of resources. And I know Ms. McCord had mentioned this also. You can put in your zip code, the diagnosis, and it will pull up local and national resources. And that's at www.cancerfac.org. And then I do want to mention the Patient Advocate Foundation. They provide a lot of great resources and a lot of great information as well as advocacy to help you with your financial concerns. You can reach them at patientadvocate.org um, and then also by phone 1-800-532-5274. I also would like to talk briefly about some patient assistance programs that can help um, with medications and with co-pays. I know Ms. McCourt covered a lot of this, so I'm just going to um, mention a few of them that are available for you. So I mentioned the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society before, um, that they offer co-pay assistance. I'm also going to mention a couple others. The Patient Access Network is currently offering copay assistance for patients who need it. You can reach them online at www.panfoundation.org, and you can also reach them by phone at 1-866-316-7263. Also going to mention Good Days from Chronic Disease Fund. They're another organization that assists with the copays. You can reach them online, and it's www.gooddaysfromcds.org. Then I'm going to mention two that can help um, with the cost of prescription medications, and Ms. McCourt had mentioned these also, so with needy meds. Um, they're wonderful. They're devoted to helping people who are looking for financial assistance programs. Um, you can reach them online at www.needymeds.org, where you can basically look up the names of the medications, and it will get you connected to the programs out there uh, that cover them. Another organization that does this, Partnership for Prescription Assistance. Um, their website's pretty good also. They've got a prescription wizard uh, that you can go through. It'll take you through and basically go through the medications you need, other needs you may have, and pull up all of the programs out there that could help. You can reach them at www.tparx.org. So those are just some resources. And then just to go back a little bit really to the tools, and again, it's remembering the three Gs, which is getting organized, getting all your ducks in a row, gathering information about the cost of care and what's covered, and getting connected to the different programs that are out there. Very briefly, I'm going to switch gears um, and talk about a very important resource that can help with the stress of all of this, which is support. So Cancer Care provides support services, and I'm just going to go over those. We provide free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include individual counseling. We do that face-to-face -face in New York and over the phone nationally. Support groups, which we do face-to-face -face in New York and over the phone nationally and online nationally and internationally. We have education programs like the one we're on today. Um, we also provide practical help and can assist you navigate the healthcare system. And as I had mentioned earlier, we do provide some financial assistance. 
all of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers really are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or uh, her support network. We're also trained to help cancer patients and their families tackle the problems that accompany their disease. Um, you know, today we're talking about how to navigate um, the financial demands of this can also help you navigate the physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impact in care. And I find that adjusting to and finding ways of coping with a diagnosis is an important part of the healing process, and I actually consider it to be a part of treatment. So I really want to stress with you um, that whether you're struggling with the financial piece of this or, you know, struggling to cope with the diagnosis, you don't have to do any of this alone. We are here for you. Um, for support, we have for the support groups. You can connect with others who are going through a similar situation. Individual counseling really gives you a space that's just yours to voice any concerns. Feeling well emotionally helps you better cope with the diagnosis, as I said earlier, and I really do feel like it is part of treatment. At this time, we are offering an online support group uh, for individuals diagnosed with blood cancers. We also provide caregiver groups. Uh, we do those face-to-face -face in the New York area, on the phone nationally, and uh, online nationally and internationally. We also have a general patient group that we do face-to-face -face in the New York area and also over the phone nationally. If you are interested in any of our services, call us. Um, you can reach us at our Hope Line, 1-800-813-4673. I also recommend visiting our website, www.cancercare.org. There's a lot of good resources on that website, not only about support, but also about what we've been talking about today, which is the financial concerns you may be facing and also just information about your diagnosis. It's been a lot of information on today's program. I know it's a lot to sort of digest and get your arms around. We're here. I really can't stress that enough. You do not have to do this alone. If you are concerned about how you're going to manage this and how you're going to navigate the finances and the diagnosis, call us. You know, that's what we're here to help you with. So please, please remember you're not alone in this. Our services are here to help you. Thanks so much for the uh, opportunity to speak today. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Kelly. That was really outstanding. And so much information, wonderful resources. We will also be sending you all those resources again after the program. Um, and I know that some of you are seeing them also as announcements, so thank you all. Um, and uh, now we do have time for questions. I want to thank our speakers for really making that possible. And so I know that many of you have questions that you'd like to ask, and I'm going to ask Stephanie to explain to all of you how to queue for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible, and if we don't get your question, I'm going to give you a way to get answers to those questions on the call before the call ends. But let's see how many questions we can take just right now. So, um, Stephanie, please. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, please press star then 1 to ask a question. We have a question from one of our online participants from Jennifer. How much does Medicare Savings Plan generally cost, or is it something they qualify for free of charge? Uh, Ms. Wolf, do you want to address that? Sure. So the Medicare MSP is free of charge, and it's it's a benefit. You do have to qualify. 
Um, the qualifications vary depending on which state you live in, but they'll look at your income and your assets. And if you qualify, then they will pay for your Part B premium, which is generally $104.90 per month. And again, as Michelle McCourt mentioned, you know, there, are, there are higher benefits as well depending on your income. Actors such as, you know, a, a firefighter or, you know, somebody who works in some, a bus driver, somebody that could impact public safety. But generally, there is no right to disclose. It's a very personal and private decision. Um, my advice is usually get the job, and then if you feel like you need to disclose your cancer diagnosis to ask for work accommodations, you have the right to do that. But bringing this back to the topic today, which is insurance, health, your prior health history should have no impact on accessing your employer's health insurance. So in that regard, um, Everybody coming into a position is entitled to their employer's health policy. There's no pre-existing exclusions anymore, and insurance companies can't deny somebody a policy because of their health history. That's very important to be aware of that. Um, that's a very important issue in terms of workplace issues and cancer. Um, so please do, um, for everyone on the call, be very much aware of this. Um, and actually. That's another issue to bring up also with our social work staff here, people who are going through job interviews um, perhaps um, after their cancer uh, diagnosis or returning to work after their cancer diagnosis. And Ms. Kelly, you want to address that in terms of many of the issues that come up probably in the support group so that you and you talk to people individually as well. Yeah, and you know, this is a huge issue just across the board. Um, patients and people who are survivors are really struggling with this. Again, just to go back to what Ms. Wolf said, you are under no obligation to share um, with your employers any of your personal health information. And I recommend uh, actually a resource, got a great resource for this. So you can always call us and we'll help you with your specific situation, help you navigate that. There is another resource, an organization called Cancer and Careers. And you can access them online. It's www.cancerandcareers.org. They are a wealth of information on this. So they've got webinars, um, booklets you can read. You can also go onto their message boards to get questions answered, uh, email with a career coach. They're, they're just wonderful. So I definitely recommend checking them out as well if you're having concerns with an employer. Excellent. Um, Excellent uh, resource for everyone to have as well. Thank you so much. Um, and we have another question from um, one of our online participants. Um, so the question is, um, my child was just diagnosed with lymphoma. Will this affect my employer-sponsored health insurance coverage for my family? Ms. Wolf, could you address that? Well, the answer to that um, should be no. Um, first, as I mentioned, there's no more caps on coverage, so that you know your your insurance has to pay for all the costs associated with your child's care and your family's care, and can't 
um, have any monetary caps. Um, I, I think the only concern would be if you have to reduce your hours as a caregiver for your child um, because certain employment policies require that you work full-time in order to maintain your coverage. There is a law, the Family Medical Leave Act, that gives you some protection if you need to take time off to care for your child, and that's up to 12 weeks in which you can maintain all of your benefits. Um, but the diagnosis of your child shouldn't impact the ability to use that coverage for the health costs related to your child and the rest of your family. Excellent. Um, one point, and that, that comes up a lot in terms of for people's concerns about um, having a family member who's ill. And uh, Sarah, do you want to comment on that as well in terms of the support yeah. groups? And Absolutely. So this is something that comes up all the time, whether it's a child um, who the caregiver is looking after or an adult. And one of the things, again, to remember is that it's up to you what you want to share with your employer or not. You just want to make sure that you know your rights. Um, so knowing the HR manual, sort of knowing the policies in there, um, some of the things that Ms. Wolf has talked about today, Cancer and Careers also has a section on caregiving, so you want to check out their website too for some tips on that. You also can always call us, and we can help you navigate that too. Excellent. Um, and um, I have another question from one of our online participants um, about their reliance on the care caretakers. So I rely on my caretaker to help to keep my finances in order, but I'm very worried there will come a day where she will be unavailable. How should I prepare myself? I have difficulty organizing my bills when I'm feeling weak and exhausted from my treatment schedule. So I'm going to ask everybody to kind of weigh in on this one. This is really an important one. It's uh, an issue that many people on this call, of course, um, are, there is someone else who's helping out, both the person with lymphoma and their caregiver, their family member, partner. So um, I'm going to ask um, Ms. Kelly if you would start with this one. Sure. Yeah, you know, it's easy to sort of say the three Gs, um, but it's harder when you're not feeling well and you're in treatment. It's hard to do things like get it organized and gather information and get connected. So, you know, one of the things you can do, you can start with just getting connected. If you are concerned that, you know, something will happen to your caregiver, they won't be able to be there for you, you really do want to have a plan B. So talk to the healthcare team. Get in touch with a social worker or a patient navigator, express your concerns to them, and see what they can do to help you come up with a treatment plan. So it's uh, not just on you. I'm sorry, not a treatment plan, but a plan of action. So it's not just on you um, to do this when you're not feeling well. I also recommend, if you feel comfortable doing this, depending on what the situation is, talk to your caregiver. If this is a huge concern of yours, talk to them. You know, see if you can sort of come to an understanding with them about whatever the issues may be. So talking with them, if you feel comfortable doing that, absolutely getting connected so you can get a plan of action for yourself, and that's going to help reduce some of the stress there. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Rosenthal, do you want to comment on this in terms of just the issues that, um, that come up so often around, around this? In, in terms of being able to talk to the healthcare team and the, all the members of the healthcare team to get involved. Sure. I'm, I'm glad someone asked this question because I think it points out an important thing in that no one goes through a cancer diagnosis or treatment alone. 
um, it really affects people around you and those trying to help support you. And so I think um, caregiver burnout is a real thing. And so some of the resources that were already um, brought up sound like excellent things for caregivers to look into as well to make sure that they're taking care of their needs while they're doing their best to take care of their friends and family. Um, I think um, exactly that. You know, if you bring it up to the healthcare team, perhaps we have other resources institutionally or locally that might be helpful to keep things organized, to give people a break if need be, and to make sure that all of your concerns are, are addressed to the best of our ability. Excellent. And Ms. Lipsch, you want to comment on that in terms of just the, um, the role of a caregiver often in probably dealing, helping navigate all of the things that you've addressed? Sometimes it's the person well, with some flower, sometimes it's their caregiver. Yeah, well, I, I, from a legal standpoint, certainly. Um, you know, one of the big parts of the work that I do with my clients with cancer are looking at, you know, what documents might be needed to help you take care of all of your non-health-related issues in business. And you might want to consider a document called a power of attorney. And this is something that allows you to name somebody that you trust that's able to assist you with your non-health related matters. It might include paying your bills every month um, and they'll have access to your bank records. It might include helping you with insurance matters. So that with the power of attorney, you don't, you know, the person can stand in your place and help you if you need to appeal a claim denial or talk to your insurance company. There's a lot of different powers that can be given to somebody that you choose, somebody that you trust, that can help you. Um, and also, if there's a time, for example, when you're hospitalized or not able to take care of these matters, they can step right in and all they need is this power of attorney and it allows them, it enables them to stand in your shoes and help you with a lot of these issues that can be so overwhelming when you're in treatment and dealing with your health issues. Incredible question, and Miss um, Accord, I wonder if you could comment, just because I know that our in our Cocopa um, Assistance um, Foundation receives many calls, both from people themselves with lymphoma, but also perhaps their uh, family members and caregivers are calling in their behalf. So if you could just comment on that as well. Yes, um, we do. We we receive a lot of um, calls from the caregiver, and um, I would reiterate a little bit of what what Ms. Wolf said. Um, you know, a lot of times the caregiver wants to initiate the application for the patient um, and sign on behalf of the patient, and you know they can't always do that unless they have um, unless they're a legal representative for the patient or do have power of attorney. So I would encourage that, and then I would also you know encourage um, that that level of communication, so if you're concerned that your caregiver is maybe overburdened, that they um, seek out some of the resources available to help them kind of get through this whole cancer journey. Um, cancer care offers great support services for caregivers um, that really they should, that they should look into. Excellent. This is, this is really been an outstanding uh, question that has been asked because indeed, and I think what Mr. Court has said is quite true and Sarah as well, but many of our um, people who contact cancer care are, are also caregivers. Many of them, I would say a, a large majority of people who call us are both caregivers or people living with cancer or lymphoma. And so that we will work with all um, who call us and indeed 
when one feels as a person living with lymphoma that you become very reliant on your caregiver, it's okay for the caregiver also to seek help. And we do a number of workshops on, um, on caregiver stress and helping caregivers to cope. And so that's really important to be aware that we just have a lot of counseling services as well for caregivers. I would say, Sarah, that we have probably an equal number of programs if you want to go into a little more detail about all the different caregiving programs that we have for um, for the people on the call who are concerned or our caregivers themselves would like to take advantage of our services as well. Absolutely. So, you know, I mentioned the different levels of support. We provide face-to-face -face support in the New York area. Um, we have offices in New York, Long Island, New Jersey, Connecticut. Each of these offices provides face-to-face -face caregiver support. We also do this support over the phone nationally and online, um, as I said, nationally and internationally. Our caregiver program is very, very robust um, and really focusing on the issues that affect caregivers because, as Dr. Rosenthal, Rosenthal said, you know, it's not just the patient, it's also the caregiver and the whole support network. So know that these supports are here for you. Also, we're here on the HOPE line. All of our oncology social workers are on the HOPE line. If you're a caregiver and you are really sort of seeking support and even seeking just sort of a way to handle a specific situation, call us. You know, that's exactly what we're here for. And we also have a number of people who take advantage of our services who are long-distance caregivers who may not live in the same town or community that the person that they care for, that they're really caregiving for. And so we have a number of programs for long-distance caregivers as well. So just to be aware of that. I want to thank all of our speakers today. You have been extraordinary, I must say. And I want to thank all of you who posted really such wonderful questions um, today on our program, really outstanding questions that enabled all of our speakers then to address this whole topic in greater depth because of your questions. Now, I want to um, remind everyone that this is a one-hour workshop, and in planning a program like this, we, have, we recognize that you all have many needs and questions that may go far beyond the scope of one hour. And so I first of all want to let you all know that there are resources for you after this program ends. We haven't ended yet, so I want to let you know that indeed if you do have any medically-focused questions um, about your lymphoma, I would suggest you call the National Cancer Institute, Cancer Institute at 1-800-422-6237. It's a wonderful resource. And, um, the, and uh, that, that's a terrific resource to have. And in addition to that resource, I also certainly recommend the Lymphoma Research Foundation, which also has a wonderful call center for any medically focused questions. And um, their telephone number is 1-800-500-9976. If you have any questions regarding really wanting to get help in coping with lymphoma or coping with all these financial issues that you raised today, all the kinds of challenges that you face um, in coping with, um, with the cost of cancer, I would very much recommend that you contact Cancer Care um, at 1-800-813-4673. Again, 1-800-813-4673. Most importantly, as we are about to conclude the program today, I wouldn't want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with, with lymphoma or cancer. I want you to now know that you're part, you come under the umbrella of the Cancer Care Services, and we are here to help you. And I very much encourage you to take advantage of those services, and you can contact us at any time. Um, and uh, we are our social work staff, our oncology social work staff are here to help you. Our, our co-pay assistance program staff are here to help you as well. 
Um, so you really have um, a lot of different people here to assist you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect, and everyone have a wonderful day.